WHMP. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And this is our monthly segment with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We call the segment Writing Wrongs. Carol Rose, thank you so much for being with us every month and for being with us today in particular, because last night, in the middle of the night, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a ruling, a decision, on the request for, well, regarding the situation involving the stay of the abortion drug this in the case, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the Federal Drug Administration. Would you be kind enough to bring our listeners up to date, please, on what has happened in that crucially important case? Yeah, thank you, Bill, Buzz. It's great to be here and with all your listeners. Um, so this case arose last Friday, a week, almost a week ago. A, a federal district court in Texas issued a ruling uh, that attempted to block access to a drug called mifepristone. Now, mifepristone is one of two drugs that are often used in administering abortions. It's incredibly safe. Uh, it's been on the market since 2000. Uh, there's been hundreds of studies showing that it's safe. Uh, and, I mean, in fact, it's safer than common drugs like Tylenol and Viagra and things like that when it comes to medical complications. Um, nonetheless, uh, some anti-abortion um, extremists uh, filed this lawsuit, um, they, they went forum shopping. They went down to Amarillo, Texas, uh, where there's only one judge, a Trump-appointed judge named Matthew Kaczmarek, uh, who's written extensively against things like access to contraception, equal marriage, um, and immigrants and things like that. So they, they handpicked this judge. And Judge Kaczmarek, a week ago, last Friday, issued a stay um, that basically said, he inserted his own opinion for that of the FDA and said, uh, we're going to go back to pre-2000 and say that mifepristone or MIFI, it's what people refer to it as, uh, shouldn't have been approved by the FDA after all, even though it's been in use for 23 years and, and is incredibly safe and is used in about half of all uh, abortion care uh, cases in this country. Um, so then he said, but we're going to wait, I'm going to stay, I'm going to pause my effort to do that until this Friday for seven days. And so it's this Friday, basically like 1 a.m. on Saturday uh, is when we're going to know. In the meantime, the uh, Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and um, Danko, who's one of the makers of Mifepristone, uh, filed a lawsuit uh, or, or filed a response and said, you know, we, we don't want that to happen. And so they went up to the appeals court, that's the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and said, could you halt this because it's going to create so much havoc if people can't get access to these uh, medicated abortions because I mean just think about um, if it's half of all the cases that that's really a problem um, and so what happened is last night in the middle of the night this appellate court the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals actually paused or put a partial stay on the lower court the Judge Kismark ruling uh, and, and mostly what they did is they said, well, we're going to not say that we're going back to the year 2000. Uh, that's just too far back. So we're not going to agree to that. But we are going to agree to go back to 2016. Uh, and in 2016, the Food and Drug Administration um, basically amended their approval of the drug because it had been so effective and so safe for so many years uh, and basically said uh, that they they changed the, the regulations a little bit. And so what the judge did last night, what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals did last night, is basically to say, we're going to go back to 2016. So we're going to say that now you can only uh, do this for up to 49 days uh, of gestation, which is seven weeks, when many people don't even know they're pregnant. Before it was 10 weeks. Um, they're going to require three in-person office visits 
um, the first to administer mifepristone, the second to administer the second drug, misoprostol, and the third to assess any complications. Um, they're going to make sure that you can only get this drug um, with an approved physician, which is really a problem because uh, a lot of um, advanced level practitioners who are, may not be doctors, but advanced level practitioners are fully capable. Again, this is an incredibly safe regimen, an incredibly safe drug. Uh, and then finally require more reporting. So the court, it's sort of a halfway there. So this Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, didn't reach the merit. So this isn't a final decision. This just says what's going to happen in the next, well, presumably that it may still be, a, that decision may be appealed as well. But basically it says that for now we're going to press pause. So uh, MIFI uh, will still be available, uh, but under the new 2016 regulations. Um, and here in Massachusetts, we can talk about what that means for people here, but the most important thing for people to know is that here in Massachusetts, abortion is still accessible, it's still legal, and, and it's still safe. So people should know that in Massachusetts. Carol Rose, I don't mean to sound like a cynic, but I can't help myself on this one. You just are, Bill. The <laughs> I am, and getting more cynical, because <laughs> what the Fifth Circuit did, it seems to me, is to issue a more sophisticated, perhaps more legally sustainable, but almost uh, almost as bad a decision as Judge Kazmarek saying, yes, you can use mifepristone. It's a safe, effective drug. It's been used for 23 years, but you can't use it unless it's within the first seven weeks of pregnancy because well, because that's what we decided. We know more than the Federal Drug Administration. And you won't actually be able to use it very often because you have to go for three visits as opposed to just getting the drug and taking it. I mean, it is a cynical decision, it seems yeah, to me. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Bill. I mean, you know, sort of on two points. I mean, first, this is really going to impact negatively people who live in rural places, people who are poor and can't make three visits to a doctor who may be far away. Uh, it's going to disproportionately impact black and brown folk and and, and people who traditionally aren't, don't live in places where it's easily accessible. Um, so it's really cynical, you know, in, in, this, in the way that you're, that you're suggesting it, you know. And the second is, you know, to say they didn't really reach the merits. They didn't shut down the really crazy reasoning of this Judge Kesmark. I mean, to your point, they just made it sound more legalistic. His, his opinion really read more like an advocate's brief than it did like a reasoned judicial opinion. Now it talked about conspiracy theories by the Clinton administration. It talked about, uh, you know, impose the judge's own version of what's safe and not safe over the Food and Drug Administration. Um, and in doing that, both the, the lower court judge and also this Fifth Circuit, they really are threatening not just access to uh, abortion care, which is obviously incredibly important, uh, but they're also going to screw up the entire Food and Drug Administration process of uh, all of approving all drugs. I mean, imagine if a, a court could come in and just say, you know what, I don't really agree with what the FDA did in terms of COVID vaccinations or smallpox vaccinations or HIV vaccinations or any of these things. And just some single judge in Amarillo, Texas, you know, saying that I, I'm going to insert what I believe in ideologically over the science. Um, and, and it really can undermine the entire medical regime in this country, the, the Food and Drug Administration's ability to approve new drugs, life-saving drugs, um, in ways that are just, you know, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, pharmaceutical company uh, 
you know, people are, are filing amicus briefs and saying, oh my God, if this goes forward, you're going to undermine the ability to even get funding to do research to develop drugs. So, th so this lawsuit is really pernicious on a whole variety of ways, um, not just over and above access to reproductive health care. One aspect of the decision that is confounding to me is how the judge in Texas, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, found that the plaintiffs had any standing to bring this suit. The Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine is a made-up organization <laughs> that was uh, uh, situated in that district so they could pick Judge, judge Kaczmarek, well-known for his uh, conservative doesn't really convey. This is right-wing views. Is, uh, yeah, ideological. Is, mm -hmm. I, I, yes, is an ideologue. Um, and picked by Trump to be a judge for that reason, uh, with the right. blessing of the Federalist uh, Society. That said, uh, he spent a long time in his decision writing about how this group had standing, that is, any legal uh, basis to bring the lawsuit at all. Right. And the Fifth Circuit, as far as I can tell, seems to have just alighted over that and said, well, we'll get right to the, uh, the stay itself without even addressing in any detail whether or not there's any right for this lawsuit to exist in the first place. This right. is both, no. Carol wrote, Rose. I, I wanted to, I, I can't find the name of the case. There was a case in which some uh, pro-choice physicians brought an action mm -hmm. to challenge some legislation. I don't know, it was five, six, seven years ago. Alito wrote right. a dissent. Um, and the question was whether or not those physicians on their own behalf and on behalf of their, their uh, patients had standing to challenge some really pernicious uh, right. abortion things. I think that that's what the Fifth Circuit was relying on because the majority of the Supreme Court said, yes, they have standing. Alito said, ironically, in a dissent, they don't have standing. I think that's right. what the Fifth Circuit was relying on. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's true. I mean, so standing, as you as you both know, and, and hopefully your listeners also understand, so in in U.S. law, if you want to file a lawsuit against something, you have to show how you've been harmed. You can't just file a lawsuit because you don't agree with something, right? You, ha you have to show that there's a case in controversy, that you yourself have been harmed. And here, um, you know, the challenge uh, that they had, I think they should have had a greater challenge, was to say, so they're saying some emergency room doctors uh, might have to, in fact, uh, provide treatment if this drug regimen goes sideways. Well, that's also true if people don't get access to the drugs. And in fact, it's more likely if people are not doing the two drug regimen, but just a one drug regimen, which is happens in a lot of places, it's only about 65% um, as effective as opposed to the 99% effectiveness that you have when you have the two drug combination. Um, and so the notion that they're saying, well, we're worried about emergency room doctors might have to do something down the road. That's a very thin basis for providing standing, um, which is what the both the lower court and then the Fifth Circuit seem to do. So it really, um, I, I think the only good news here is potentially that if the U.S. Supreme Court, where this is likely to end up, ultimately gets the case and they don't want it because they're also, they have many ideologues and they don't want to reach the merits, it's possible that they could uh, throw it out because of this really weak standing argument without having to reach the merits. It's also possible they could throw it out on a statute of limitations because um, what the lower court did is to say that, gee, these, this group and these uh, proposed, you know, proposedly representing uh, emergency room doctors, but it's really just a group of ideologues, um, they, 
they could go back to 2000 and, and they didn't miss their opportunity to file suit. That's really an overreach in terms of the statute of limitations. Um, that's why I think the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said, well, we're not going to go to the merits of this 2000. We're not going to uphold the injunction or uphold the ban from 2000, just from 2016, because they think that it's still timely. So I think on issues of standing and on issue of statute of limitations, those are two of the many procedure, huge procedural problems in the lower court ruling that we're hoping that the higher courts will throw out the case because of those, if not on the merits itself. Carol, as you know, there are a whole s slew of legal theories that allow a court to not reach the merits of a case. You have not exactly. exhausted your administrative remedies. You don't have standing. The statute of limitations has passed, right. or in an equitable situation, uh, that is where equity, where injunctions are involved, uh, latches, the doctrine of latches, you've waited too long, uh, regardless right. of what the statute of limitations specifically is. Uh, it's not justiciable. There isn't a real case or controversy. You don't have standing. It's a political question. It's not right. I mean, there are a whole range of... Lots of ways for courts to duck. Absolutely. Right. And, <laughs> and they should. And sometimes they should. And when they want to, they do. And they invoke those right. doctrines. And when they don't, they go, ah, nah, you... You've got standing. Um, it, it's it's right. it's an important case. We want to hear it, and they just allied over those issues and those doctrines. What I am uh, uh, really struck by uh, mm. is the commentary, and this is really summarized in the news analysis. It was in the Times on Tuesday by Adam uh, Liptak, who is New York Times Supreme Court reporter. And he writes an analysis, and his analysis is not about the doctrines or about the, mm -hmm. or really a, about what Judge Kaczmarek said about the law, which wasn't much. He said a lot about his own uh, personal religious and ideological beliefs. Let me read two sentences from a Adam Liptak's news analysis. The conservative legal movement has long had two key goals, to limit access to abortion and to restrict the authority of administrative agencies. Mm -hmm. The decision by a federal judge in Texas seems to, well, meet those two, check those two boxes. Um, and then he goes on to say, at first blush, all that might seem to make the decision's chances of surviving review by a Supreme Court dominated by conservative justices quite promising. But legal scholars said that the poor quality and breathtaking sweep and unknown collateral consequences of the dis Texas decision might cause some of the Supreme Court conservative justices to wait for another case that would allow them to mm -hmm. take more measured steps. Nothing about the law, nothing about the quality of the arguments, nothing about the legality, only discussing what the ideology and the political bent is of the majority of the Supreme Court. And it seems to me that that is an extraordinary step to take, that we don't even pretend that it's a matter of what the law says. It's a matter of what the justices personally believe politically and ideologically. And I'm wondering if you see this as a step, an irrevocable step uh, in destruction of the rule of law. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I think, Bill, it's, it's so sobering, and I'm so glad you're raising this point, because, I mean, people who are in the practice of law, we know that it's never just balls and strikes, you know, for the most part, judges are trying to do their best to reach a fair conclusion. And sometimes they use the reasoning to get to the conclusion that they want, but they are generally trying to be fair and non-ideological. But what we've really seen, and really accelerated, 
uh, during the Trump years with the, the appointments to the court and blocking of Obama's final appointments and things like that, is a politicization, um, an ideological politicization of the courts. We know about it at the U.S. Supreme Court because those are such you know, public uh, debates about uh, the Senate confirming the Supreme Court justices, but it's happening throughout. And I think, you know, Judge Kesmarek out in Amarillo, Texas is a perfect case in point of that. Um, there, we have these ideologues that are on the bench that are trying to use the power of the judiciary to achieve really political or ideological aims rather than to actually take, apply the law uh, as, as with respect to things like precedent. Um, but, you know, the rot starts at the top. And so we saw with the Dobbs decision itself overturning Roe versus Wade, you know, the first case to overturn fifth, after 50 years to actually take away rights rather than to expand rights. I mean, it's just so sobering to see that and, and to do so as part of a larger political agenda. Um, and that the highest judges, I mean, we're seeing this stuff now with Clarence Thomas and Jenny Thomas and even John Roberts with all these ethics problems. Um, you know, I think the public is rapidly losing faith that the court can and will be fair and, and judicious, if you would. Um, and I think that's one of the greatest threats to our democracy right now, because we need to have public faith in the government for the system of democracy to work. And so these kinds of decisions and this poor reasoning that's coming out of the courts in some of these decisions um, is really detrimental, again, not just to the case before them, but to the larger system of checks and balances and the rule of law in this country. We're speaking with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We're going to continue this conversation in two minutes. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank, with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. There are moments when the beauty in nature arrests us, and we must look or listen very closely. These moments are so fleeting. How do we keep these moments of wonder alive? That's a question the poems in Mary Pfister's new collection wrestle with, but don't fully answer, hence the title, Quick to Bolt. Mary Pfister reads from Quick to Bolt at Broadside Bookshop this Wednesday, April 26th at 7 p.m. Quick to Bolt is a delight. Be there as Mary Pfister brings these poems to life, Wednesday at 7 at the Broadside. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hanger Pub and Grill? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hanger Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hanger Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game. After work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. During the break, Carol and Buzz and I were talking about a number of aspects and continued our conversation about a number of aspects of the case of the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the Federal Drug Administration and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision last evening, middle of the night decision issued by the court. There are so many aspects of this to talk about. I'd like to spend another minute or two at least with who's on which side here. And I'm Mm. intrigued by the front page article. This was again Tuesday's New York Times. Drug executives condemn ruling on abortion pill. Pharmaceutical industry condemns judges' ruling. Hundreds of leaders see a threat to the regulatory system for approving medicine. Uh, This is a Supreme Court that is, in fact, ideologically really concerned about big business making billions of dollars. And in this instance, there's a pharmaceutical industry uh, whose entire model of business is put at risk because an invented lawsuit uh, with a uh, judge selected for the purpose of making a specific ruling – in a circuit that is the most likely or one of the two most likely to actually affirm the ruling uh, can undo the entire way in which drugs are approved in this country. And that puts big business on the other side of what the uh, ideological conservatives want. I'm wondering how you see that playing out. Yeah, well, I mean, you're absolutely right, Bill. And how sad is that? That I mean, if it's merely, you know, all people who, you know, are able to have to reproduce you know women and other people who are having babies who are on the line the court doesn't care but when it comes to drug companies you know then you've got a problem right so i mean i guess that's the per, the perverse advantage of this because if in fact judge kosmarik is able to say i lone judge in amarillo can go back and revert and, and say that the, what the fda did back in 2000 is wrong and i'm not going to let this drug be approved then why couldn't other judges do the same thing with regard to a whole range of other drugs? And, you know, whether we're talking about COVID drugs or, or HIV drugs or, you know, whatever, um, pneumonia, smallpox, you name it. Some judge that doesn't believe in medicine, period, could go back and, and say we're not going to have any FDA approvals. Um, that simply isn't going to work. And the threat that it would pose to the drug companies is remarkable because if any judge could do that, then why would you even invest the money in the first place, which are, you know, billions of dollars to be able to just bring a drug to market? Um, a lot of them don't even make it. So there's a huge amount of risk in the, you know, the economics of uh, drug medicate and medicine R&D and um, commercialization and deployment. And so the FDA provides a level playing field to make sure that there are systems in place so that the drug companies and their investors can actually have some certainty about the way the market's going to work. What Judge Kazmark has done is just thrown a monkey wrench into the whole drug approval system. And if that is allowed to stand, it's going to have implications that are far and wide, including here in Massachusetts, where so much of our high-tech economy is based in biotech. And I, I want to um, go so there, but I, so I, just really point, I just want to point out, Carol, that it's also all administrative agencies have that six-year statute of limitations for the regulations that they pass. So it's not just the drug scenario, it's the EPA and whatever else we could think of. You know, that's that's so right, Buzz. And, And it's sort of this effort, as Bill said, by the U.S. Supreme Court to dismantle our whole system of regulations that keep us safe in this country. Um, and so this is really sort of an existential threat, not only to uh, reproductive access and reproductive health care, but to our 
you know, safety regimes, whether it's environmental or health across the board. Um, on the other hand, as Bill said, there's also this huge business interest. So one can hope that perhaps um, where the uh, civil rights groups and the ACLU may not be able to persuade the court, perhaps the drug companies will be an ally in this case. I want your perspective on a number of things, Carol, but I really like your perspective on this. What mm. what Chief Justice Roberts has said is, I don't want the Supreme Court in the business of making abortion decisions case by case. Uh, Dobbs did it. Um, we're through with Roe versus Wade. Now we're out of the business of deciding abortion rights mm -hmm. because, well, mm -hmm. it's, we've left it up to the states. And now what we've seen is this nationwide push by anti-choice zealots to right. prohibit abortion every place they can in any way they can. And in fact, they will achieve that goal, they believe, by going state by state in the legislatures and in the courts. And those fights are just beginning, which means the Supreme Court's going to be involved again. And the United, States, Con the United States Congress is going to be involved. They will mm -hmm. or will not pass mm -hmm. a law. And I'm wondering how you see this playing field. Well, I mean, it's a, we have this really crazy patchwork right now with every state having different rules. And we're so fortunate to live here in Massachusetts where our governor and our state attorney general and our delegation uh, have done so much already to make sure that you know, access to reproductive health care will remain viable here in Massachusetts. But make no mistake, they are coming after Massachusetts. They they won't stop until they see a ban nationwide. And when they try to get it with Mifepro, with Mifeprostol first, they're going to go after or uh, Mifi first, and they're going to go after Misoprostol next, and then they'll go after surgical abortions next. Um, and so they're not. I mean, it's the, the gloves are off. And they've made it very clear that they're going to be pushing for this. And, you know, if you go back to the Dobbs decision and remember what Justice Clarence Thomas put in his opinion was that he wouldn't stop at access to abortion. He'd go after contraception and he'd go after equal marriage. Um, so, you know, when it comes to like bodily autonomy and our bodily integrity, there's a full fledged attack on our right to control and to make these fundamental personal decisions about our bodies, about who we want to marry, about whether we want to start a family and when we want to start a family. Um, you know, these are fundamental decisions about bodily integrity, bodily autonomy that historically have been left to each of us to decide as an individual liberty right. Um, the notion that we are moving to a system in which far, you know, Judges in Amarillo, Texas can decide our fate of our families and of our bodies is incredibly scary. It's very handmade tale-ish, if you would. And, uh, you know, I think that's why it's so important that we're fighting back. And I just, I, I do want to talk about it, lest your listeners become too depressed, because I think, um, you know, a crisis is an opportunity to push back. And I think the momentum uh, against what the courts have been doing is really growing in this country. I mean, we can uh, see what's happening here in Massachusetts. You know, Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell joined with 22 other states in the District of Columbia filing an amicus brief in this case, uh, trying to stop Judge Kismark's order. Um, the city of Boston joined with over two dozen local governments filing a similar amicus brief in this case. Um, 240 members of Congress filed an amicus brief. And I'm happy to say that our entire mass delegation, with the exception of Rep. Moulton and Rep. Keating, also filed a brief. So we certainly, uh, Rep. Uh, Richie Neal signed on, Senators Markey Warren signed on, um, and, and basically uh, highlights the congressional actions trying to create the best in the class system to assure safety and efficacy 
uh, of drugs in this country by the FDA. Um, and the other thing I just want to talk about, like sort of sort of the good news of all of this is our governor, uh, Maura Healey and, and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll uh, have issued um, amazing steps to make sure that people in Massachusetts continue to get access to this care. Um, regardless of how this case ultimately turns out. So they've stockpiled more than a year's worth of doses of mifepristone, um, 15,000 doses. So um, even if there was a ban on the FDA uh, approval, the doses that are already in hand can still be administered. So that's important to have that stockpile. Um, they, they issued an order confirming that the 2022 SHIELD law to protect patients and providers here in Massachusetts will continue to apply to medication abortion, including mifepristone. Um, and the Department of Public Health is issuing guidelines to make sure uh, that that's gonna happen. The Division of Insurance issued guidelines here in Massachusetts, helping to implement the order. Uh, and last month, the Massachusetts Board of Registry uh, of Pharmacies issued guidance to all the pharmacies here in Massachusetts, clarifying that they are required to stock and dispense all reproductive health medications, including mifepristone. Um, and so, these are the kind of actions and the kind of alignment that we're seeing um, here in Massachusetts to make sure that, you know, people here are going to be protected. And now we have to also turn our attention to protecting people in the rest of the country who aren't as lucky as we are here in Massachusetts to have such amazing political leadership. Um, which is which is the conversation I want to have with you, Carol, because I want to know yeah. your opinion with regard to states that are passing laws that are making it illegal to go to other states right. to seek reproductive right. care. We're going to continue that conversation right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts House leaders unveiled a $56.2 billion state budget plan yesterday that includes proposed spending on universal school meals, an expanded scholarship program for in-demand jobs, and competitive grants to encourage renewable energy projects in public schools. The plan also outlines how the state would spend an estimated $1 billion in additional revenue from the new millionaire's tax approved by Massachusetts voters last year. The $1 billion would be split between education and transportation initiatives, with a quarter of the total, $250 million, paying for capital investments at the beleaguered Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority. Police are investigating a fatal crash that took the life of a Coleraine man. Around 1 p.m. Wednesday afternoon, a motorcycle struck a Grand Cherokee heading eastbound on Route 2 in Charlemont as the Jeep was attempting a U-turn. The motorcycle rider has been identified as Gregory Herzig, a 66-year-old man from Coleraine, who was transported to Bay State Franklin Medical Center and passed away due to his injuries. An evaluation committee established by the East Hampton City Council to pick a developer to transform the city's three former elementary schools is ready to recommend a developer. Arch Communities of Needham scored the highest of three submitted proposals with a $30.4 million pitch to transform the schools into 61 units of mixed-income housing and preserve pep and gym and auditorium for community use. The recommendation will now go before City Council at their next meeting April 20th. Sunny skies today, less wind, but still a breeze and still relatively high brush fire danger and a high of 82 to 86 today. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 50 to 56. It's a mixture of sun and clouds tomorrow. Again, a high of 82 to 86. Back into the 70s on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. 
Yo soy Johan Reshivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Las personas que están esperando un reembolso de impuestos podrían recibir uno más pequeño que el año pasado, y con la inflación aún alta, ese dinero no llegará tan lejos como hace un año. Los 90 millones de contribuyentes que presentaron sus declaraciones al 31 de marzo obtuvieron reembolsos que fueron un promedio de casi un 10% menos que el año pasado, en parte debido a la expiración de los programas de alivio de la pandemia. La fecha límite de presentación para la mayoría de los contribuyentes es el martes 18 de abril. El reembolso promedio es de $2,910 por debajo de $3,226, una diferencia de más de $300 según los datos más recientes del IRS. Para muchos hogares, especialmente para las familias trabajadoras, el reembolso de impuestos es la mayor ganancia inesperada financiera única del año. Y es que el impuesto sobre la renta del trabajo ampliado y los créditos tributarios por hijos durante la pandemia de COVID-19 proporcionaron muchos beneficios para las familias con niños. Más estadounidenses se dedicaron a actividades secundarias y trabajos independientes durante y desde la pandemia, por lo que pueden estar experimentando el impuesto sobre el trabajo por cuenta propia y las consecuencias de la falta de retención. Un empleador tradicional que proporciona una forma W-2 retendría impuestos de cada cheque de pago, lo que significa menos impacto potencial al final del año fiscal. Existe la posibilidad de que los reembolsos de impuestos más bajos de este año puedan debilitar el gasto de los consumidores y, como resultado, ayudar a frenar la inflación. Para combatir la inflación, la Reserva Federal ha estado elevando las tasas de interés para aumentar el costo de pedir dinero prestado con la esperanza de desacelerar la economía. Yo soy Johan Reshivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We've been talking about the decision from Texas to ban the early stage abortion drug, mifepristone, and what the decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in the middle of last night means for us, since it's a nationwide case in terms of its applicability. In that regard, Carol, I know that there is an upcoming briefing this evening, a community briefing from the ACLU. Would you, I would like you to please share that information with our listeners who yeah. are going to want to know more about this. Absolutely. So tonight, the ACLU of Massachusetts, with our partners in the Beyond Row Coalition, uh, we're hosting a community briefing. And we're going to talk about the decision and what it means for you and for people in Massachusetts. Um, and for people who'd like to listen in, you can register to join at bit.ly, bit.ly, bit.ly slash Mithy Briefing. That's bit.ly slash M-I-F-E-B-R-I-E-F-I-N-G. BIT.ly slash Miffy Briefing. And that's this um, evening. And, so that'll be good. and that's this evening. And we're going to have, um, there'll be providers and patients and um, advocates and lawyers and all sorts of people there uh, to answer people's questions. There's also a legal hotline that people can call. Um, then, and that'll be uh, announced tonight at the, at the community briefing. I have two questions there on either side of this legal scale. Um, one is, and taken whichever order your optimism or pessimism uh, moves you, Carol. One is how abortion rights are winning, have been winning in elections. On the positive side, yeah. of the scale, 
on the no, other side, I mean, on the other side, I, there are state legislatures that are making it a crime to travel within that state in order to get to another state to seek reproductive care. Take those in whichever yeah. order you want, and make me feel either good or bad. Your choice. <laughs> okay, we'll do bad news then good news because we want to leave people feeling positive because there is really, um, you know, when we fight, we win. Um, so, you know, on the bad news, yeah, absolutely. There are these captured state legislatures and captured state courts and uh, that are pushing forward, um, trying to, you know, take us back to the 18th century laws uh, around abortion care. Um, and that would control people's lives that really want to take away our bodily autonomy, some sort of Victorian uh, mores that seem to be... Uh, throughout all of this stuff. Um, and that's really deeply problematic. And that's why the ACLU with offices in every state, you know, we work in every state, but we also work as a network and collectively and provide resources and share information. Um, and so we have lawyers at every step of the way and other advocates who are really fighting against these state laws that are so uh, reprehensible and to make sure that there are protections so that as many people as possible are able to travel. I mean, the right to travel is a pretty fundamental right set forth in the Constitution. So there are a lot of ways to challenge these efforts to restrict movement. Um, and here in Massachusetts, one of the most important things to know about is that uh, there's a bill pending before the legislature that would make it um, put a ban on the sale of your cell phone data location so that county hunters from Texas can't track you um, when you're in Massachusetts. Um, and so um, putting in some kind of these uh, really fundamental privacy protections and right to travel protections are gonna be key. So we have a lot of tools in the toolkit uh, to fight in all 50 states to try to prevent um, the worst of these laws from going forward. Um, it's just that the, the wheels of justice can move slowly. And so, um, you know, for a long time, uh, for 50 years, when we had Roe versus Wade, there was no need to take on these really bad state laws because the federal law was providing constitutional federal protection. Um, but now that the, the Dobbs decision came down overturning Roe versus Wade, we have this patchwork. And so it means that the battle has really moved to the states. Um, you know, on the on the good news front, um, the battle in the states is often going well, especially at the ballot box. I mean, we saw back in November of 2022 uh, in, in all these states, especially Kansas, most notably, uh, where access to abortion was put on the ballot. Um, and in Wisconsin. And, and wait I mean, a second, stop Michigan. there for a second. Kansas, the, one of the most conservative Kansas. states in the country, the right to abortion won by a large margin. I think it was like 68%. It was a huge margin. And, and you know, my, my mom is great. My mom said she's 95 years old. And she said, you know, those farm women still go into the ballot box alone, into the voting booth alone. And they vote their conscience. And I think that the vast majority of people, whatever people feel personally about reproductive health care, they don't want the government deciding it for them. They don't want the government to come in and make these decisions that are so fundamental uh, to our uh, families, to our futures, to our, our bodies. Um, and to our health. Um, and so I think we're seeing that. And we saw it again just you know last week in, in Wisconsin when there was a state Supreme Court um, election. So in, in Wisconsin and a lot of other, I think 17 other states, they actually elect judges. So talk about political judging, right? Um, they elect judges. Um, and in Wisconsin, the state Supreme Court, they're elected to a 10-year term. Uh, and so the voters overwhelmingly elected Janet uh, Protasiewicz, who's a judge with the Milwaukee Circuit Court now, to the Supreme Court. Um, and so for the first time in 15 years, um, you know, the progressives, the liberals are going to have control over the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which is incredibly important because there's a lawsuit uh, that's trying to, like, 
stop the, you know, they've gone back to like literally an 18th century rule of criminalizing abortion. And that's a lawsuit moving its way through the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And so the, the election was incredibly consequential for protecting uh, reproductive justice. And um, the voters overwhelmingly voted to put a judge on the Wisconsin Supreme Court who would protect abortion rights. So I think that we're seeing this, um, you know, in the midterms. Overall, we saw it um, in Vermont, in uh, Tennessee, uh, in Michigan, in Kansas. We're really seeing that people don't want the government coming in and taking away their right to this fundamental health care. And I think if there's a silver lining, all of this is that people are waking up and recognizing that all of us have an obligation to fight for access to health care as a human right and to know that abortion care is health care. Well, final question for you, Carol Rose. There's a disconnect between what is happening in the state legislatures and what is happening in the uh, in the elections. And I don't know how to reconcile that. On one hand, voters are saying, we want our right to choose. We don't want mm-hmm. the government deciding whether a, uh, uh, a 13-year-old girl who is raped and becomes pregnant has to carry that right. child to term. That's up to that's up to the person. That's not up to the government. It's not up to someone with a theological bent to decide. It's up to the individual. Individual rights matter. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what the people are saying. But the legislatures, are many of them, are doing something very different. I'm not here in Massachusetts where we, 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 spectacular responses from the attorney general mm-hmm. and the governor and the purchasing of 15,000 uh, doses by the uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst got that. But there's a disconnect in the country between what the people are saying and what the elected officials are doing in many places. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think it's a dawning. I think that you know, it's it's dawning on the people right now that they have to fight for these rights. And I, that's why I think we're seeing more and more people getting involved in politics. You know, democracy, I've said this before, is a muscle. And the more you use it, the more powerful it becomes and the stronger it becomes. And I think when people sit back and don't really pay attention because they're busy and they're tired and they're working and we all have that. But when we pay attention, when we get involved, that's how we make sure that our rights are protected. And I think that's why the ACLU working in all 50 states um, has such a big role to play in this because uh, we've been there for a long time. You know, we've been there over 100 years. And so we have an opportunity to try to use this time to mobilize people to vote to make sure their right to vote is protected and to try to push back both in the courts, but also in state legislatures um, and if necessary online and in the streets to make sure that this fundamental right to bodily integrity is protected and not subject to some ideologues sitting in Amarillo, Texas. Before we go, Carol, could you tell our listeners one more time, please, about the community briefing about abortion, abortion rights this evening, sponsored by the ACLU of Massachusetts and our coalition partners? That's right. You can register to join at bit.ly slash Miffy Briefing. That's M-I-F-E Briefing. bit.ly slash M-I-F-E Briefing. Um, And I hope people will join in and bring your questions and uh, just stay in touch because, you know, we're going to be there fighting uh, day in and day out to make sure that people's rights to reproductive health care are protected. And I'm really grateful to you, Bill, and to you, Buzz, for making sure that people uh, have a chance to get that message. Carol Rose is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. She is with us every month for a segment that we call, well, a program that we call Writing Wrongs. Carol Rose, thanks so very much. Thank you.
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance, local people, local service, local insurance, in partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000. Spring is here, and that means it's time to enjoy some sunshine in the great outdoors. Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliotis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. 16-ounce cans of Amherst Brewing beer are available to purchase in package stores across the entire state of Massachusetts. Visit our brewery in Amherst located at the Hangar Pub and Grill for the widest variety of can options. In a rush, order cans ahead of time by visiting hangerpub.com to place a pickup order. And while you're here, why not order some of our famous hanger wings for the perfect pairing? That's H-A-N-G-A-R-P-U-B.com. Have you ever gone swimming with a polar bear, scuba dive with crocodiles? Amos Nahom has, and his nature photography has made him the BBC's Wildlife Photographer of the Year twice. Now he's coming to Northampton's Academy of Music for an Earth Day show Saturday, April 22nd. He'll share his breathtaking images, the thrilling stories behind the photos, and his message of harmony with the natural world. Visit aomtheater.com to get your tickets today for Amos Nahom, funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism, and visit Hampshire County you're listening to talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg whmp i'd like to bring to your attention an editorial from the springfield republican that i thought was of particular interest uh springfield republican pretty middle of the road uh, newspaper middle of the road uh, and, and editorially. Uh, this was from Tuesday, April 11th, with the heading, Agawam Took Wrong Road on Mail Ballots. Let me reshare a couple of sentences here. Since September 2020, voters in Massachusetts have had the option of voting early by mail. Let me interject. Yes, which has been fabulous uh, going on. With the pandemic still howling, that new provision allowed people to cast ballots without fearing contagion in a public place. And it allowed people who have trouble getting to the, uh, to the polling places to vote. And it allowed people who couldn't make it to the polling places on the day of the election to vote. And it allowed people who want to exercise their right to vote to vote. And it done perfectly, really. Uh, not a complaint uh, worthy of mention in terms of how the system has worked. So the editorial goes on. A law passed last June made the choice permanent, except that is in a handful of communities, including Agawam, where officials decided this convenience comes at too high a cost. The Secretary of State thinks that's a bad move. So do we. 
The roughly $28,000 expense of early voting by mail cited by Agawam officials is worth the investment. We hope other communities stick with the mail option. The convenience of voting that way for those who choose it helps increase turnout. The editorial goes on to say, Even after two years, most Massachusetts residents now expect to have that means of voting. Yes, we do, according to a legislative specialist with the League of Women Voters. Taking it away weakens even if marginally small d democracy. And then the editorial goes on to explain how in Agawam that option will not be allowed because it is up to each municipality to make that decision. The editorial concludes, quote, Wise leaders govern in ways attuned to the needs and realities of busy residents. Taking away the option of early voting by mail turns this small but meaningful aspect of civic life in Agawam for some into one of inconvenience. That's an unfortunate stance for elected officials to take. As I said, the Republican is moderate in the way it expresses itself and its views. But what a horrible decision. Let's prevent people from voting because it's not worth $28,000 to allow people to vote. What a horrible decision. I wish it was unusual. Uh, I wish that what we saw in Georgia didn't happen. And, you know, this, this issue first became explosive during World War II, absentee ballots for people who were serving in the military. And um, th- there was a huge fight about whether or not to allow them to vote or because they weren't available, they sh- it to come into the polling place, they uh, they shouldn't be allowed to vote. Was the argument? It's incomprehensible to me. If you believe in democracy, you believe in one voter gets a vote, each voter gets a vote. Then I don't know how you can be opposed to it. But we saw in Georgia, if, if so many, you know, there there's uh, in Texas. I think that there's only four. I don't know about now. Boxes, drop boxes to 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 put your. Uh, early voting um, and uh, votes, ballots in a Dropbox. It's incomprehensible to me. Well, there's an entire movement from the right wing to prevent people from voting, particularly brown and black people, because they don't want them to vote and they are taking every step that they can to marginalize people even more and to prevent them from voting. And that is the position of the right wing. They say it differently, but look at what they do. That's what they're doing. Prevent people, preventing people from voting. I'd like to go on to one other editorial on, in that particular paper, in that particular day, titled Clearer Ethics Standards Needed on High Court. This is the topic you brought up on earlier, Buzz, with Carol, Carol Rose from the ACLU. The editorial begins Our nation's highest court makes its own rules. In part, this is because the Constitution says little about the court. It's also a function of tradition. The court answers to no one but itself and its institutional prerogatives. This is a story, an editorial about Justice Thomas and his acceptance of millions of dollars from right-wing business people and how that reflects on the court. And I know you had some thoughts about this that you'd care to share. Buzz. Well, I just think that the Supreme Court justices should, you know, we have one Supreme Court. And it, we have three branches, and they're the head of it. And they are the, the Supreme Court, so they make their own rules. Every other judge in the federal system has to has disclosure requirements, that they have ethical requirements, and uh, they can be removed if they violate them. But the Supreme Court exempts itself from the same rules. And some of them, especially Clarence Thomas, just abuse. They, they use that exemption 
to be able to uh, benefit themselves in unthinkable ways, millions of dollars uh, that he's benefited from, along with his wife, Ginny Thomas, the, uh, the big lie advocate, the Trumpian Ginny Thomas. They, and they go on these cruises that are worth a half a million dollars each, we're told. Um, how many half-million-dollar cruises have you been on lately, Bill? Uh, I've re- I've reduced it. I've just as a matter of you know, you're down in, to in, a, in view of COVID, quarter of a million dollar trees. Yeah, yeah. I so, would po- I would point out there is a lead uh, column in today's New York Times talking about how if this had happened 25 years ago, Justice Thomas would resign and would have been forced to resign. But of course, he's a hero of the anti-abortion, anti-choice right-wing crowd. So. That's never going to happen. The more defiant he could be about anything, including those rules, the happier he is. This editorial concludes, it's in the interest of Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, and the court generally to restore the court's reputation. It won't be easily regained, but ignoring the situation isn't the answer. Here, here. We thank you all for being with us. This has been Talk the Talk. We remind you, please, to also walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, health care, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at thenaam.org. Call 413-587-0084. There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. This is Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And this is Thursday at 10 o'clock. It's time for... Science and Sensibility with Brian Adams. And Brian, what do you have for us today? Well, uh, we focus a lot on climate change. And today we're going to talk about climate change. And don't turn your dial. Don't go elsewhere. It's not a gloom or doom section. It's actually a solution segment today, which is really exciting. Um, The good thing about climate change, if there is a good thing, is that there are solutions to the mess that we find ourselves into uh, and one of those solutions um, is a really interesting idea, and here to talk about that uh, is our guest for the morning, uh, Klaus Lackner. Klaus, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Klaus is the director of the Arizona State University Center for Negative Carbon Emissions. He is a professor at the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment uh, at Arizona State University and joins us from out west. So he got up early for for this show. Thanks for doing that. So, Klaus, carbon dioxide, if we sort of wanted to, to point a finger at a culprit 
in climate change, it would be carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere when we burn fossil fuels, oil, coal, natural gas. Uh, carbon dioxide is sort of the culprit in climate change. It holds heat in the atmosphere. Uh, and it's going up, up, and up. You have developed a technology that sort of mimics fake, uh, mimics real trees, and you've made these mechanical trees. Uh, the focus is on capturing carbon dioxide out of the air. This is remarkable. Can you uh, lead us through what that, what that process is and what these devices are? Um, happy to do that, but let me start a little earlier because I got in the early 90s. It became absolutely clear we have a waste management problem. We are digging up carbon in the form of oil, coal, and gas, and we let it out into the atmosphere And because we don't know what else to do with it once we are done. So the net result is we are piling up carbon in the environment, and we need to, for every ton we put out, we need to put another ton away. And what hit me very early on if you fly an airplane, you can't possibly collect the CO2, which comes out of those jet engines. If you have a ship crossing the ocean, they are going to run on, on fuel because it's very hard to do anything else nowadays because wind is not getting us all that fast anywhere. So the bottom line is we have to mop up the CO2 we get and at least half of it ends up in the atmosphere. So our goal very early on was to say, can we collect that? And my initial inspiration was a windmill. A windmill is a device which collects energy from the wind. And we said maybe that same wind also contains CO2. And so we needed a comparison, what's more. And in today's numbers, I would say, look, the cubic kilometer of air a big windmill sees in an afternoon, that is about uh, $300 worth of energy at five cents a kilowatt hour. If I look at the CO2 in that air and say I'm willing to pay $30 for a disposal fee, uh, there are $21,000 worth of CO2 in that air. So what early on struck me already in the late 90s, that we ought to be able to suck the CO2 back out of the air. And then of course you look out on the outside and you look at a tree and that's exactly what a tree is doing. Actually, a tree is doing more once it has the CO2, it converts it into biomass. We don't even do that. We are specialists. We are like a, tr uh, a tractor pulling a plow. Uh, we are the equivalent of we replace the horse, which is the tree, with a with a tractor, which can pull a lot faster. So a tree doesn't nothing else. They collect the CO2 is about a thousand times faster than a natural tree of the same size. So that's where we started. The mechanical tree is a thousand times faster at capturing carbon than a regular tree does. That's that's remarkable. Right. Now, now, so take us back to the 1990s. I, I think it was the 1990s, right? Your daughter is in yep. the eighth grade. She's doing a science fair project um, of how to capture carbon. You're like, whoa, my eighth grade daughter is on to something here. Is that how this all began? Well, not 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 quite. I was but I was working. A great story. I was working on this stuff, and she shows up in my office, and she says, at home in my office, and she says, "I need a science fair project." And I say, "Claire, why don't you go and collect CO two from the air?" And then she went out and said, "I'm going to buy myself a pump for for uh, an aquarium which pulls air through." And then she showed that she can collect about half of the CO two in the air she pumped through her little test tube. 
And I, as a father, all I really had to do is get up at midnight and make sure there's water in the test tube because it has to run all night. And then in the morning she measured how much CO2 she had collected. And it turned out it was useful later because people said it can't possibly be done. And I saw some paper written about that and I said, well, maybe I did make a mistake. And I said, wait a minute. It, that paper is right, Claire's experiment couldn't have worked. So I sat down and I found the mistake. <laughs> wow, so thanks to the eighth grader, the world may change. Now, now Klaus, these mechanical trees um, carb capture carbon, suck carbon out of the air using a passive way. There's no electricity going into this, correct? And how, how well, does it work? Well, at the end, you need, you need power to undo this. But most people who have, in the meantime, come along and say, we can do direct air capture, see the big fans and blowers. You even see them in the cartoons, which, which design these things, because you think you need to suck the air in, and then you have to spit it out again. But clearly, you wouldn't do that in a windmill. You would think that's silly to blow the air through the windmill in order to turn it. Right? So we said, well, there's plenty of natural airflow. And so we have to design so that this is good enough for us. And so the equivalent now is really the tree because the tree has leaves and the air blows over the leaves and a small fraction of that CO2 in that air when it touches the leaves is actually removed, sucked into the tree and then the tree does things with it. We on the other hand, just want to have the leaves to be very good at absorbing the CO2. And then half an hour, 20 minutes, an hour later, when the leaves are full with CO2, we collect them into a into a closed containment and we push the co2 back off and the cycle repeats itself so we are basically just the leaves of the tree but because we are eager to get lots of co2 and we don't care about collecting sunshine on these leaves we can pack them a lot more tightly because they can shade each other and we can use a much stronger binding agent sorbent, than a natural tree does with its chlorophyll so the bottom line is we are a thousand times faster in accomplishing that sucking up. Now that we have the CO2, we have to push it off. And there we are no different than any other process. We need energy to make that step happen. But we did find a sorbent in 2006, which had the feature that rather than making it hot and spending a lot of energy that way, you can make it wet and it releases the CO2. And that's another way of going, and we, we are studying that still to this day and use that as one of the, of the possible options. So you have these mechanical trees. They capture carbon, suck carbon out of the air passively just by the wind blowing through. They're doing this mm -hmm. a thousand times faster or more efficiently than a regular tree does. Um, and, and what do you do when you capture the carbon? What do you do with this carbon? Well, we, in some sense, we are agnostic at this point. We developed a tree that collects CO2. Now, in the very short term, you need a market for that CO2 because people have not come around here to pay you lots of money to put CO2 away, although this is starting right now. right? Uh, people pay up to $1,000 a ton right now, which the world cannot afford in the long run. So the important thing is the cost comes down. But we have two options. One is you use that CO2 for something or you dispose of it, right? And so people dispose it, for example, uh, in places where you had oil, we can now pump in CO2 and keep it there. There are places in the North Sea where there's actually salt water underground and people push the CO2 into that salt water in order to have it stay there permanently. 
I started in, 19, in the early 90s to say we actually should make mineral carbonates. Uh, carbon dioxide is an acid, it's known as carbonic acid, right? And if it reacts with a base, uh, uh, from high school you know a base and an acid make a salt, right? And those salts are known as carbonates. And so limestone is a carbonate. So the world is full of these calcium carbonates. Mm -hmm. And so in Iceland right now, there's actually a project which I helped to inspire where they inject CO2 into the basalt as carbonic acid. And in about a year from now, that CO2 which has been put in today will have turned into a solid carbonate. So now it's out of the environment. It does not com contribute to climate change anymore. And given where we are today, we may actually have to pull more CO2 back because we are already too far up the chain. We don't just have to clean up that airplane which flies tomorrow. We may also have to clean up that airplane or for that matter, that power plant which pumped out CO2 20 years ago. Because with we are now reaching that 1.5. We get there now in a hurry. 1.5 degrees Celsius, which we're trying desperately right. to keep under. We're talking with Klaus Lackner. Klaus is a professor at Arizona State University. He is the director of the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions and is the inventor of a mechanical tree sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Bill Newman, you have a question for our guest? I do. Professor, does this work at scale? Does this, is, it, is this actually an answer? I mean, it sounds amazing. So tell me about that, if you would, please. It, it's a very, that's a very interesting point, right? And I would argue, yes, it does. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother working on it, right? But the, the basic concept is that mass production is a very powerful thing to do. There are lots of people who think if you build some things, you have to build the units bigger and bigger. This is how we got to gigawatt power plants and how we got to huge, huge refineries. It struck me a long, long time ago that we actually built car engines which are 100 times cheaper than a power plant, kilowatt for kilowatt. If you buy a car engine, it's about $10 a kilowatt. If you buy a power plant, it's around 1000 to $1,500 a kilowatt. So that low cost of that car engine ultimately comes from the fact that it's mass produced. So we are arguing just like a billion cars or 1.2 billion cars on the road, which is what the world has, can put, produce an awful lot of CO2 our mechanical trees can collect an awful lot of CO2 back. The cars are emitting, we can collect. So our point is you can, by going simply to scale, get there. And to give you an example, I like to think in one ton a day units. Now, the tree we currently have at ASU is like one, one out of a dozen, which would fit into a container. So you need a container size unit to make one ton a day because we can put 12 of them into such a container. So think of putting now those containers up. You would need 100 million to keep up with current emissions. Uh, the world has 10 times as many cars, 12 times as many cars. So we know that we can build industries at this scale. As a matter of fact, there are on the order of 50 million, 30 million containers leaving Shanghai Harbor every, every year. So, and they are full with stuff. So our production capacity to get to that scale exists. And there is nothing in these machines which is rare. So you would say, well, we can't have that because it's just not available. Um, we're talking with Klaus Lackner. Klaus, uh, we have about a minute till break here. 
but I think a lot of our listeners are saying, okay, whoa, this is amazing. Fake trees, mechanical trees, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. But a lot of our listeners may be thinking, whoa, trees do this. Yeah, they're not as efficient, but why not just plant a billion trees, more trees, than putting these mechanical trees in there? Your, you would, your answer. You would, need, you would need a trillion, and I would argue we should build, grow those trees, and we should start doing that. I am just concerned that by the time you get big enough, that you actually solve the problem, you have created a new environmental nightmare. If you look at it, ultimately the trees convert sunshine into biomass. And so I can turn around and ask how much sunshine do I need to grow enough trees to deal with that same 40 gigatons of CO2 a year we are emitting. It turns out I need an area that is bigger than all of the world's agricultural areas combined. And we have 10 billion people who need to have food, we will have an environmental footprint if we are that large. So I feel at the start, those trees are very important and they will help us to get over the next 50 years. But in the end, if we want to balance the budget, we need to have mechanical approaches to it. This we is just so fascinating. We're going to be back with Brian Adams and Klaus Lackner on removing this climate-damaging carbon we all suffer from by the use of mechanical trees. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Looking for a fun and competitive day out with friends or the office team? The Junior Achievement Annual Golf Tournament is on Friday, June 9th at Crump and Fox in Bernardston. The day will include many contests, giveaways, food, and more. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through in-school and after-school programs focused on financial literacy, career exploration, and entrepreneurship. To register, visit jawm.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Brian Adams and with Professor Klaus Lackner of Arizona State talking about 
I guess carbon sequestration is the right way to term this. Well, carbon sequestration could be the science word of the day. Uh, most of us would call it carbon capture, capturing that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And I think most of our listeners know that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It's a heat-trapping gas. Um, my understanding as of uh, today, we're at somewhere 423 parts per million, and that is not a good thing. So Klaus Lackner, our guest, is arguing that it's not enough to stop putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Instead, what we have to do is work on ways to remove the carbon dioxide that is already in the atmosphere uh, out, and hence the idea of this mechanical uh, tree. Um, Klaus, uh, help us understand what this tree would look like. I mean, does it look like a tree? Uh, it, does it look like one of these cell phone towers that are out there? What, what um, paint us a picture of what these mechanical trees look like? Well, we, over time they have changed in their looks. Uh, I think I first coined that phrase at a meeting in Denver, of all places. I think it was a AAAS meeting, and in the early two thousands, where I said, "It is like a tree. It is like a tree in the sense that it has leaves, and these surfaces, as the wind blows over them, absorbs the CO two. The current version you can think of like a tall poplar tree. What it really is, the leaves are discs about five feet in diameter, and they are a flat sheet of material that absorbs the CO2. And they hang together on thin ropes, so if, or, uh, if you bit, or ribbons, if you pull them apart, they, they form a column about 10 meters tall, so like a poplar tree. At the bottom of this column is a two and a half meter, about eight foot tall, drum uh, into which the entire set of discs can sink and then the lid closes. So in that sense, they're very different than a tree. They move. So once they're in that, that drum at the bottom, we can remove the air which is inside, then send in a little bit of steam and heat at below boiling temperature. And then what comes out is a mixture of water vapor and CO2. We then compress up and make liquid CO2 out of it. That's the long-term goal. And then we put that away and dispose of it. On the, on the other side, when the tree is now empty, the whole stack of leaves, like the old record players, <laughs> except in reverse, uh, create a stack of these discs all the way standing up uh, to 30 feet height. And then the wind can blow in between these discs and leave its CO2 behind as it crosses across there. So it's it's like a cypress or a poplar tree. And the concept of the tree, of course, you can think of it as a machine. It's a little bit like saying, I have a tractor and I compare it to a horse, right? I'm, we are both pulling a plow, uh, but the tractor is just much better at it than, than the horse because it was designed to do nothing else. Klaus is on uh, Skype here, uh, Skyping in from Colorado, and your hand motions were very <laughs> useful as I was watching you. And, Terms of, of of trying to trying to figure this out, Klaus. Who yeah, would who would? I can't pay? help myself. No, <laughs> Klaus. Who would pay for these uh, pay for these trees? And how much do they? How much would you envision that they would cost? And where would they go? So it's a three part question. Let's do the economics first. How much do they cost? And who? Would Let's pay do for the them? economics first. I I do believe we should think of this as a waste management problem. People have argued, oh, it's so much nicer to use the CO2. It's fine to use the CO2, but the US uses maybe 1% of the CO2 it actually emits. 
if you want to make fizzy drinks and fire extinguishers, <laughs> yes, we use CO2. Right? If you add all of that up, it's seven, eight million tons. If you add enhanced oil recovery and urea production, you may be at 100 million tons. We put 5,000 million tons out every year, so we can't use it. So think of this as a waste management problem, and guess what? I am paying for my garbage. And if and see the difference between waste management and mitigation is very simple. Think of me as putting my, my dumping my garbage on my neighbor's lawn. They will complain, and they will not take it as an answer that I do 10% less of it this year than last year. So we need a rule. If carbon comes out of the ground, a ton of carbon has to be removed. And for this, you need a certificate of sequestration. And some of them will be generated at the power point, uh, at, the, at the power plant, at the point of emission. But a large fraction of it, we can't get that way. And those certificates of sequestration will be made by collecting CO2 from the air and then disposing of it. And by the way, you can get a certificate of sequestration for that natural tree as well. I think we just will, in the long run, outcompete these trees. So this gets you to the second part of the economics question. We all will have to pay. If I pay $30 a ton of CO2, I would pay roughly a quarter on a gallon of gasoline. I will pay, whether it's synthetic fuel or not, I will pay, uh, I will pay in order to have the CO2 to make the gasoline or to dispose of the CO2 from a gallon of gasoline. It would cost me about 25 cents on the gallon. Now, right now, direct air capture is probably closer to $500 a ton. That's what Climeworks is doing in Iceland. They may be $1,000. We don't really know because they don't tell you publicly what exactly it is. But if you look at learning curves, if you look at photovoltaics, every time you double output, cumulative output, you end up reducing costs by roughly 20%. That means if you grow a thousandfold, you are 10 times cheaper than you were before. And photovoltaics was 100 times too expensive when it started. So it had to get two times a factor 1,000. It had to grow a millionfold to get affordable. And it did it, and it succeeded. And wind did more or less the same. And many, many mass manufactured pro uh, products, from washing machines to car engines, followed the same rule. So my assumption is, I can't prove that, of course, that air capture will behave like all of the other technologies. And right now, the world is maybe putting kilotons away. So, so the economics so if, will work if you ramp it up and mass produce. These, that's the idea. Economics. And if we go from, from $500 to $50, we need to grow a thousandfold. This means we go from kilotons a year to megatons a year. At a megaton a year, we are not climate relevant. We are still tiny. We are just starting to fill the consumer market for CO2. If you go from megatons to gigatons, which is another factor, thousand, we are climate relevant. And I don't think anybody will know what it will cost right there. But I'm rather confident to say that with a very high probability, by simply growing a thousandfold, we can drive costs down well below $100 a ton. Where eventually we cannot get any better. People said, well, eventually you need energy and you need to pay for that. That's true. But the current trees, ours, everybody's, are still horribly inefficient. We use roughly 20 times as much energy as, as physics demands. That's because we are new at it, all of us, 
and we're not very good at it yet. So we can get 20 times lower in, th in theory just on our energy consumption. But the energy consumption is not what limits us. Well, this is, this is exciting stuff. Unfortunately, we are just about at break time. We've been talking with Klaus Lackner. Klaus is a professor at Arizona State University in the School of Sustainable Engineering, the inventor of carbon capturing mechanical trees. He's got a prototype up. Klaus, uh, people can visit uh, this stuff, I think just uh, going on to the web and putting your name in or put, getting, putting in mechanical trees get you into a whole lot of fascinating sites and videos where our listeners can uh, learn and read and watch more of this fascinating stuff. And that's Klaus Lackner, L-A-C-K-N-E-R. Thank you, Buzz. Yes, it is. Klaus, thanks as so much. As long as they spell on. your name right, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Klaus, thank you so much for being on the show. And we appreciate all the good work that you're doing and trying to come up with solutions to climate change. Here, here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you, Klaus. We're going to be this right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts House leaders unveiled a $56.2 billion state budget plan yesterday that includes proposed spending on universal school meals, an expanded scholarship program for in-demand jobs, and competitive grants to encourage renewable energy projects in public schools. The plan also outlines how the state would spend an estimated $1 billion in additional revenue from the new millionaire's tax approved by Massachusetts voters last year. The $1 billion would be split between education and transportation initiatives, with a quarter of the total, $250 million, paying for capital investments at the beleaguered Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority. Police are investigating a fatal crash that took the life of a coal rain man. Around 1 p.m. Wednesday afternoon, a motorcycle struck a Grand Cherokee heading eastbound on Route 2 in Charlemont as the Jeep was attempting a U-turn. The motorcycle rider has been identified as Gregory Herzig, a 66-year-old man from Coal Rain, who was transported to Bay State Franklin Medical Center and passed away due to his injuries. An evaluation committee established by the East Hampton City Council to pick a developer to transform the city's three former elementary schools is ready to recommend a developer. Arch Communities of Needham scored the highest of three submitted proposals with a $30.4 million pitch to transform the schools into 61 units of mixed-income housing and preserve pep and gym and auditorium for community use. The recommendation will now go before City Council at their next meeting April 20th. Sunny skies today, less wind, but still a breeze and still relatively high brush fire danger and a high of 82 to 86 today. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 50 to 56. It's a mixture of sun and clouds tomorrow. Again, a high of 82 to 86. Back into the 70s on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenville Cooperative Bank. 
At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And you are listening to that wonderful part of the week when we actually talk about uh, the amazing musicians that we encounter here in the Valley. And today we have... Glenn Siegel bringing just an extraordinary saxophonist I have been so lucky to hear several times, Jimmy Green. Hi, Glenn. Good. Hello. How are you? <laughs> good are you? whatever. Good, good day. You. Yeah, good day. Um, it's great to be here. Um, our guest is Jimmy Green, one of the most respected tennis saxophonists of his generation. His latest release is called While Looking Up, and it's his 11th as a leader. And he has appeared on over 75 recordings as a sideman. He's worked with Horace Silver, Freddie Hubbard, Ron Carter, D.D. Bridgewater, among other legends. And on Tuesday, he'll be at the Drake in Amherst performing with the Green Street Trio. Jimmy Green, it's so nice to have you with us on WHMP. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on this morning. Yeah. How many times have you uh, performed with Paul Arslanian and the Green Street Trio? Uh, I, I came up one time um, about 11 years ago. Okay, well, uh, it's overdue. Oh, yeah, it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Great. And tell us, how does this type of gig differ from uh, a performance with your own ensemble? Well, you know, the most, uh, I, I would imagine the biggest difference is if I'm performing with my own group, I'm playing mostly my own original compositions. And I'm playing them with musicians, you know, who are very familiar with with uh, my original compositions and have played them with me a bunch before. Uh, but it's also fun to come up and play some of our standard repertoire, you know, with with musicians that, you know, maybe I haven't played with uh, very much. And that's that's the wonderful thing about our music. Um, it's all about community and about sharing and about uh connection you know so the the repertoire that you know we all kind of the common body of of songs and and tunes that that we all learn uh that serves as a point of connection for musicians all over the world really i mean you can go over the world and play in groups like this and find some common ground as far as repertoire and, and ways of playing and ways of connecting and communicating with one another and making it a fun experience for the audience 
So uh, I think this is all, you know, all, all forms of performance um, in a small group like this are, are meaningful and, and fun for me. Jimmy Green, you, you, I love that Glenn led with the other legends that you've played with, but in my view, you are a legend as a saxophonist and as a musician. I just want to, uh, it's a little bit difficult and a little bit joyful for me to remember at the loft watching you and the two beautiful children who were traveling with you who sat at a table right next to my table, and I made comment to you about how beautiful your children were. Um the unthinkable happened when you lost your daughter at Sandy Hook. And you uh, then uh, wrote and performed on uh, a CD called Beautiful Life, and in particular a cut called Anna's Way. And I, I can't help but ask you about what went into that album and how you came up with the beautiful lyrics in Anna's Way could you talk a little bit about that for us? Sure. Uh, actually, the my last time performing with uh, Paul Arslanian's trio was about four months before my daughter was killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. So uh, I actually have pictures from that evening. Um, I have some that I took in my driveway before we left, and I have one that someone very generously gave me uh, who happened to be there. Uh, I forget who it was. Maybe it was you, Glenn. I don't. I don't remember. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, the the emotions and the the uh, trauma that I experienced and my family experienced and many of us uh, where I lived experienced um, is is ongoing. You know, it, it hasn't it hasn't gone away. Um, but each and every one of us has to find a way to deal with it and to process it and to hopefully keep moving forward. And I'm very fortunate that as a musician and one who not only loves performing, but who, who loves composing and uh, arranging and producing music, um, I have an outlet, you know, that, you know, I often say music, uh, where words fail, music begins. That's a pretty common uh, phrase. Music kind of expresses uh, the the depth and breadth of the human experience in a way that little else can. So uh, part of my dealing with my tragic loss and my trauma and was to, you know, express it in some ways in music. So the album Beautiful Life is, you know, and I have to mention that that album didn't just come from me. In the months after my daughter was killed, the last thing on my mind was making an album. Uh, I was just trying to make it from day to day. But um, I got a call from a friend, a great pianist named Xavier Davis, who told me uh, someone has contacted me wanting to get in touch with you. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Norman Chesky. Uh, Norman Chesky and his brother David uh, ran uh, a record label and still do called Chesky Records. And they've done some kind of pioneering things as far as audio, um, uh, audiophile kind of recordings. And they've been, uh, and David himself is a, is a great composer and, and pianist in his own right. 
anyway, um, in addition to running Chesky Records, they also uh, ran and still do run an audio file uh, music download site uh, called uh, HD Tracks. And a lot of, you know, commercially available recordings, you know, that you would normally, at that time, uh, everyone was downloading MP3s from iTunes. Um, well, HD Tracks was like the audio files answer to iTunes. So um, when my daughter was killed in our tragedy struck at Sandy Hook, uh, Norman, uh, who got the news just like everyone else around the world, looked he heard he had heard that a jazz musician's daughter was killed and looked on his um hd tracks and saw that they actually sold my albums they they sold my albums for download and he reached out he's uh, so my back to my friend xavier xavier reached out and said there's someone who reached out to me who wants to talk to you uh norman chesky uh so i at that time a lot of people were uh trying to exploit our tragedy for their own gain if you can believe that, it's very, very true. A lot of people were looking to make a buck uh, and somehow exploiting uh, our tragedy. And I, at first, I thought this guy is the same, you know. But I said I'll hear him out. So I called him and we spoke, and you know, it was it blew my mind how generous and uh, caring he was. He said, you know, Jimmy, um, this. I have an idea. It doesn't have to happen now. It can happen in a year. It can happen in five years. It can happen in 10 years. But whenever you feel ready, you know, knowing your music and knowing um, you as a musician and a composer and an arranger, you know, uh, I really feel like the music that you create uh, for your daughter could be an amazing thing. And uh, I just want you to know I'm willing to donate the production of an album, meaning mm. I will not and my brother will not. Our company will not profit one dime from this recording. We're donating the whole thing to you and I will um, send you something from my lawyers, uh, a contract that states just that. Well, it, we want it's to, such a we gift. don't want to profit at all. Anyone. So. You know. And Beautiful Life is such a beautiful album. And the lyrics in Anna's Way, my wife and I listened to it together, and Jimmy, we cried. Uh, part of it was sadness because of the tragedy of what happened at Sandy Hook and to your family and to your daughter. But part of it was tears of joy at the way that you were able to express what a beautiful life Anna's less than seven years was. And uh, we shared that with you. Thanks to your, thanks to that piece. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you very much. So, you know, and my, my mentioning Norman and David Chesky is that album probably wouldn't have come about at least at that time. Well, thank you. If it hadn't been for their generosity and their encouragement. I so maybe... I had the space and time to write and, and compose and arrange and just, you know, there's a lot of tears. There's a lot of, it took a long time to do. Uh, that album wasn't done in a short amount of time as, as many albums are. That album took about a year. Uh, from beginning to end, it took about a year and a half. Uh, there are several different recording sessions that happened. The track you mentioned, Anna's Way, uh, David Chesky actually suggested, what if we have a children's choir on, uh, mm. on, on a track? And I had to sit down once he, when I was talking to him on the phone, to sit down once he suggested that. It just hit me uh, so firmly. And, 
of all the great children's choirs that are around, I felt like the the kids that had to sing on that track were kids that actually knew my daughter. Mm. So we actually went up uh, to, we had just moved back. Well, my family and I lived in Winnipeg, Manitoba for three years. We had just moved back to Connecticut. So we actually went up to Winnipeg. I went up to Winnipeg and recorded the children's choir at their elementary school uh, singing along with Kurt Elling, who, uh, by the way, is it does a magnificent job of, of interpreting the lyrics I wrote for that song. And the song is just about my daughter, about all the, you know, her, about her personality, about what she loved, about who she was. Uh, if you could ever capture that in, in lyrics, uh, I don't think you ever could, but I tried to do just a, just a small little glimpse into who she was. I'd like to know, uh, and, and, and I really appreciate your sharing these really intimate and sensitive uh, details of your life and her life. I'd like to know, in terms of creating the music, did the music come first? Did lyrics come first? How did you put them together? And what was that experience like? If we talk about, I mean, each, each track is, each song on the album is different, you know. Uh, the song Anna's Way was actually written uh, quite uh, several years before that. Uh, I had an album uh, from 2009 called Mission Statement. And on Mission Statement, there's a track that I wrote called Anna Grace, which was my daughter's first and middle names. And I took essentially um, a, a part of Anna Grace, the, the first part of it, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, and wrote lyrics to it. So in that, in the, for that particular song, the song came first and the lyrics came later. Um, the other songs with lyrics on them, uh, same thing. There's a song called Home uh, with the great vocalist Javier Colon, which was uh, nominated for a Grammy Award uh, for Best Arrangement, Instrument, and Vocals that year. And that's a song I had written before, too. I had recorded an album called Live at Smalls, and I wrote a song called Home. And I just adapted that song a bit and then wrote lyrics to it. Uh, so I'd written the song a few years earlier in both cases. Well, it is such a gift um, to us. We, uh, poor Glenn, who was all excited about talking to uh, Jimmy Green, and I just stole his thunder. But your story is so powerful. And every person, every listener who is a parent uh, owes you a debt of gratitude because you have uh, captured what parenting is. We're going to take a break and we're going to be back with the amazing saxophonist Jimmy Green right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Remember the joy on the kids' faces when they rode the steamer train? The beautiful wedding in the sanctuary. Eating that rapidly melting ice cream cone by the water spray park on a hot day in July. For almost 100 years, Look Park in Florence has been the scene for weddings, cookouts, concerts, and lazy days in the sun. What do you remember about Look Park? The theme of Look Park this year is I Remember When, and Look Park wants to hear your stories. Share your favorite memories throughout the season in the park and online at lookpark.org. 
While you're there, get your 2023 season pass, only $70 for unlimited days in the park. Consider buying a second discounted pass to donate to a family in need through Look Park's partnership with the Northampton Survival Center or donate directly to Look Park. 100% of Look Park's operating budget comes from entry fees, grants, and donations. Look Park in 2023, looking back on decades of memories and looking forward to creating decades of new ones. Share yours today. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Take 5 with Glenn Siegel and his amazing guest, Jimmy Green. Thank you. And uh, Jimmy Green will be performing on Tuesday at the Drake in Amherst with uh, the Green Street Trio. Starts at 7.30 and then there's a jam session afterwards. So... We're looking forward to that uh, quite a bit. And speaking of looking forward, um, Jimmy, I know there's a couple of initiatives you've uh, undertaken uh, to memorialize your your daughter, the Anna Grace Project, and also uh, an endowed music scholarship uh, in her name at Western Connecticut State University. And you have a a very exciting event coming up. Tell us about that. Sure. So uh, the folks here at WestCon, uh, where I've taught, since uh, since the time I last visited you guys uh, uh, with Paul Arsenian's trio, that was in August of 2012. I started teaching at WestCon right at that time. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners what WestCon is? WestCon, Western Connecticut State University in yeah. Danbury, Connecticut. It's about an hour north of New York City. Uh, so the folks here have been amazing um, in helping uh, me do something to permanently memorialize my daughter. Uh, and there's an endowed music scholarship here in her name. And we've done several fundraising concerts to uh, raise money for that uh, scholarship fund. And, and the scholarship is for incoming uh, college students who are music majors to help defray the cost of a college education. Uh, even though WestCon, uh, Western Connecticut State University, is a state school and offers a really, really affordable uh, tuition rate. And, you know, in my opinion, having taught and uh, attended uh, many of the great music schools uh, in the Northeast, and I, I taught in Canada as well. Uh, you don't get more for your money than you do here at WestCon, but even still, uh, that money helps to defray uh, to the cost for families of a college education, and it's something that's very important to me. So uh, we've raised money uh, in concerts, uh, fundraising concerts in, in over the years. We've had people like Kurt Elling, who is the singer on Anna's Way, uh, Kenny Barron, Regina Carter, uh, Ben Allison, 
uh, Russell Malone, Jeff Tane Watts, Rini Rosness, John Patitucci. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, Bill Sharlap. So uh, this year is no different. We're starting it back up again after a several-year pause. And uh, Claudia Acuna, the great vocalist, uh, originally from Chile, but who has been a, a mainstay on the New York scene for goodness, almost 30 years now. Uh, Claudia was gonna, is going to join us. The great pianist Oren Evans is going to be here. Uh, Desron Douglas, the great bassist, will be here, and also the great drummer Otis Brown III. So, so when will that? Them. When will that be? And how could people find out about tickets? Sure, it's Saturday night, April 29th. And it's here on campus at our beautiful state-of-the-art facility. We have a brand new building built for us here in 2014, and it's gorgeous. The concert hall is unbelievable. So Saturday night, April 29th, uh, 7 p.m. And you can visit wcsu.edu for more information on it. It's on the homepage of the university's website. So you can go ahead and and uh, buy tickets and donate to the scholarship fund right there. Great. Um, <clears throat> Jimmy, uh, you grew up in the church and are part of the music ministry of your church. Tell us how your uh, gospel roots have influenced your approach to jazz. Well, I, I believe that all musics of the African diaspora are related. It's all, you know, they're all the same way. You're talking about jazz and blues and gospel and funk and R&B and rock and roll, all of them, you know, have very, very common threads. I can say uh, I wouldn't be standing here in light of what's gone on in my family with, with losing our daughter if it hadn't been for my faith and, and hadn't been for really trusting God, knowing that uh, at the end of my life, you know, I can, I can only hope that I live my life in a way that I can... Uh, uh, see my daughter again, and that's that's a great that's a great hope. Uh, so faith, not just uh, at, you know uh, for that, but faith in my everyday life. Um, you need a lot of faith to be a musician. Yeah, this isn't the easiest life to choose, but um, uh, my faith and and knowing that there's a plan for my life, and and, and knowing that uh, essentially God's got my back has been a really I, I can't express how big of a force that is in my life. So uh, art is a reflection of life, right? So everything that I am, everything that I, I find important, uh, it makes its way into my music. So to answer your question succinctly, um, I can't help but for my faith to uh, express itself in my music because that's a big part of who I am. Great. Thank you so much, Jimmy. We have a lot of other questions, but we're running out of time, so we'll have to uh, reach out to you on Tuesday uh, after your concert and uh, chat, up, chat you up some more about your growing up in Hartford and, uh, and your uh, teaching experience. We're so grateful that you joined us this morning, and we're really looking forward to your uh, performance with Paul Arslanian and the Green Street Trio on Tuesday, starting at 7.30. No advance tickets, just show up. And it's at the Drake in the center of Amherst. Exactly, which is a beautiful venue. I don't know if you've been there, Jimmy, but it's a real legit nightclub with uh, great equipment, uh, great piano. So uh, we're looking forward to seeing you again after an 11-year hiatus. And it, it, there's no cover. There's no cover, and you, world-class musicians uh, like the amazing Jimmy Green, 
come to the Drake. Uh, Jimmy, I want to have so much to be grateful for, but I just wrote down where words fail, music begins. That's uh, that's something I'm going to remember for a long time. Glenn Siegel, thank you so much for coming. Jimmy, thank you. Great to see you again, Buzz and Bill. Thank you. And break a leg on Tuesday. I'll be there, Jimmy. Great. Look forward to seeing you. Okay. That's great. And for the rest of you listeners, thank you so much for joining us on Talk to Talk today. Remember, we're all trying to walk the walk. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hangar Pub and Grill? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hangar Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hangar Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game. After work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 11.